From KHOL, this is Jackson Unpacked. Our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm News Director Tyler Pratt. Coming up on today's show, Teton County is home to a growing immigrant community. Now a new nonprofit is helping increase their access to legal aid. Immigrants play a major role in making this place run. But also, immigrants are now your kid's friends. It's your neighbor. They're business owners. Also, what's it like to document what may be the most famous living bear on Earth? We talked to 399's photographer. Since a lot of people don't go out when it's really nasty out, and some of my best pictures were taken when I was not very comfortable out there. These stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. Thanks for joining us today. An effort to open up Idaho's primaries to more voters is gaining momentum in an attempt to possibly change party leadership in the red state. And as KHOL's Hannah Mersbach reports, volunteers in Teton Valley are working to get an initiative on the ballot in 2024. Larry Vite is wearing all denim with a baseball hat at a farmer's market in Driggs on a sunny Friday. He holds a clipboard trying to collect signatures from shoppers. Would you be interested in signing? Currently, only registered Republicans can vote in GOP primaries. Veidt explains to the market goers that he's part of a group called Reclaim Idaho trying to change that. This will open up primaries to all voters rather than just the registered Republicans or registered Democrats. It would also open it up to some quarter million independent voters in Idaho. Veidt says he's an independent, but he registers as a Republican during the primary season to help have his voice heard. If the initiative goes through, he says he'll no longer have to do that. Party leaders pick who runs in the primary. This way, the people will pick who's running. The head of the Republican Party of Idaho has condemned the movement, saying it'll only benefit Democrats. But the state's former Republican governor recently endorsed the ballot initiative, as have more than 100 top GOP officials across the state. Peter Carmen is collecting signatures next door at the Brolums, the local grocery store. When asked why he got involved... My wife and myself are both active in Idaho politics, so it's kind of a no-brainer. Standing outside the store, he tells shoppers that the measure would also put into place instant runoff elections when one candidate doesn't get the majority of votes. A lot of people Carmen talks to have already signed the initiative. Others take pamphlets for more information. It's an attempt to make the people who get elected represent a vast majority of people in the state rather than just a small section. Back at the farmer's market with Larry Vite, he says the initiative has been well received in Teton Valley so far and that volunteers across the state have collected 15,000 signatures. They have until next spring to collect a total of about 60,000. It's ahead of all the other initiatives that we've worked on, so it's looking pretty positive. If they collect those signatures, voters will get to decide if they want to open up primaries in November next year. Hannah Mersbach, K-12 News. Legendary Jackson-based photographer Thomas Mangelson is out with a new book on his favorite subject, 
Grizzly, $3.99. Environmental reporter Tom Wilkinson of the recently shuttered Mountain Journal wrote the text. This book is a tribute to $3.99 and her mini cubs and a celebration of the recovery of the grizzly population in the greater Yellowstone region. Mangelson's photography is often credited with making the public care about animals. KHOL's Emily Cohen sat down with Mangelson and Wilkinson to talk about the famed Mama Bear. The publication of this book comes at an auspicious moment. The federal government will soon decide whether to remove grizzlies from the endangered species list. Their numbers are up. Mountain West states are all in favor of delisting grizzlies. But you've both been vocally opposed to delisting. Can you speak to this? Well, what what is enough? There used to be 50,000 grizzly bears in in the continental United States, and now they're somewhere around two, 3,000. In 1974, the year before grizzlies were listed, Wyoming issued hunting tags. And if all of those hunting tags had been filled in that year, 90% of the remaining bears in northwest Wyoming outside of Yellowstone would have been killed. And indeed, Senator Barrasso from Wyoming has said that if we list species going forward, we have to consider the downsides, the costs of listing species. Well, let's play that out a little bit here in Jackson Hole. We know that tourism, nature tourism, generates about a billion and a half dollars annually. It's sustainable year after year. It contributes directly or indirectly to about 15,000 jobs. And guess what? Two of the marquee attractions are grizzly bears and wolves. On the flip side, the accessibility of seeing bears in nature drives tourism, and tourism creates challenges to our ecosystem. There's been a push to make tourism more sustainable. Are we loving wild spaces to death? So let's let's get at the heart of that premise. No person who loves wildlife or nature would love it to death. Scientists try not to anthropomorphize bears, like giving them human names. But could that be beneficial? Jane Goodall says that for us to protect animals, we have to connect. I came here in 1978, and I had to go to Alaska really to see a grizzly bear. You couldn't even, rare to see a grizzly bear in Yellowstone. That was a big, big deal. We're able to sort of enjoy the fact that grizzly bears were nameless, faceless animals and that they were incredibly elusive. Grizzly 399 has been a game changer, not only in Greater Yellowstone, but the world, in how the world has come to understand these carnivores that are supposedly notoriously dangerous and temperamental. And she, in fact, has cut against the mythology of this in a huge way. And it was that very mythology of imminent danger that was used to subdue bears, to harass them and move them away from people. What 399 has done is she has bolstered the importance of wildlife conservation and the value of why do we bring species back from the brink. My dad is a big fan of yours and is also a wildlife photographer. He, like you, wakes up well before dawn to head into the woods. He describes the rising of the sun like a curtain lifting on the stage. What do you look for? Are there times of day or weather conditions that are particularly captivating when photographing grizzlies? As a photographer, 
my colleagues, we always say there's a golden hour, which is right around sunrise, sunset, half hour each way. Now with digital, uh, it, it, it can go earlier and darker, and you know, we'll shoot in the dark. But those are generally the best times for the low sun and shadows and definition and all that and nice color. But I really dislike blue sky days once the sun has risen or once it, you know, at sunset might still be okay. But I love it when there's clouds in the sky and nasty conditions, rain, snow, not so much rain, but, you know, rain's better than blue sky to me, actually. And I think I love photographing in the snow and inclement weather, big dark clouds. Mutes the light, for one thing. So you don't get this harsh light from the from the hot sun in midday, but it it adds drama and adds mood, and especially fog. I mean, fog is uh, if you can find something in the fog. <laughs> I said I just need to find a subject now. It's great fog, and that's usually happening in the mornings, of course. So I think just those elements, and a lot of people don't go out when it's really nasty out. And some of my best pictures were taken when it was not very comfortable out there. You've spent so much time around three ninety nine. Do you think she knows you? Is she aware of your presence, even when it's just you and the so-called Grizzerati is not present? She's very aware of human presence. She's aware of everything. She would not be able to survive if she hasn't been. And people ask me, does she recognize you? Kind of after you've been, I've been documenting for almost seventeen years now. But um, I don't think she recognizes me. But I think she may smell my car. That was photographer Tom Mangelson and writer Todd Wilkinson speaking with KHOL's Emily Cohen about Grizzly 399 and Mountain West conservation. Support for Jackson Unpacked comes from 122 Resource Center, guiding members of our community towards stability and growth by providing financial assistance, food access, emergency resources, financial education, and economic independence. That's what we're here for. More information at 122jh.org. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Jackson Unpacked is generously sponsored by the Snake River Sporting Club. At nearly 1,000 acres, this private western community accesses the Snake River and Bridger-Teton National Forest. Not to mention a golf course, equestrian center, and fully functioning ranch. More information about excursions, amenities, and lifestyle at snakeriversportingclub.com. Thanks for tuning in to K-12. I'm Tyler Pratt. Immigrants living in the Tetons will soon have access to more legal help. A new nonprofit is offering assistance to the growing community. And as KHOL's Hannah Mersbach reports, it's giving people from other countries an opportunity to call the Cowboy State home. Sitting on their family couch in Teton Valley, Christy Liao Gable talks to her four-year-old son, speaking in Indonesian. Liao Gable's story sounds like that of many who've moved to the Tetons. Originally, I thought I'm only going to live here for a year, but 16 years later, I'm still here. But for a while, Liao Gable wasn't sure she'd be able to stay at all. She's from the Indonesian island of Sumatra, 
and when she first came to Jackson to be near her sister and work in finances at St. John's Health, she received a deportation letter over some incorrect paperwork. She only had 60 days to figure it out. When you're in early 20s, just graduate from college, that's the last thing you want to worry about and think about. Liao Gable says she turned to one of the only immigration lawyers in town. I finally able to hire Rosie as my attorney, and it's worth every penny. I'm here now, still, with a family and a house. <laughs> She's referring to Rosie Reed, a household name for many immigrants in Jackson. I think there are about five of us, five immigration attorneys, like, in the whole state. At the time, Reed was practicing immigration law at a private firm in town, but says her goal was always to offer services for free or low cost. And that's finally coming to fruition. Earlier this summer, she began launching a nonprofit legal center to help immigrants in Teton County. We're definitely on the takeoff. I wouldn't say we're like at cruising altitude yet. Currently in the fundraising stage, the Wyoming Immigrant Advocacy Project has been in the works for over six years. Reed got the idea around the time former President Trump was elected in 2016, after he ran a campaign centered around cracking down on border policies. Reed says she saw a groundswell of support for immigrants. I started thinking, like, maybe there's a way to create a vehicle to kind of channel that support and help out this population that was looking like they were going to need a whole lot more help in the very near future. In 2021, Reed launched part of the program at the state's ACLU, focusing specifically on violations of civil liberties. And now she's expanding that program. She says the scope of needs have become much broader as the immigrant population grows in Teton County. Immigrants play a major role in making this place run. But also, immigrants are now your kids' friends. It's your neighbor. They're business owners. Lura Matthews leads Immigrant Hope, which has provided legal aid to immigrants in the region for about seven years. She says there's a big need here, but her organization can only help with specific cases. So they might have married a U.S. citizen or people who have had DACA for a while. They need to renew their DACA every two years. People who have been green card holders for a while and want to apply for naturalization. Roughly 30 percent of Wyoming's Teton County community is estimated to be Latino, many who've immigrated from Mexico. Reed says Central Americans also travel here seeking asylum, and Eastern Europeans come for summer work in the region and often decide to stay. Matthew says Immigrant Hope can't help with all the cases since it doesn't have attorneys on staff, and that she welcomes the new nonprofit addressing that need. There has been a gap for more complicated cases and more difficult situations. According to the National Immigrant Justice Center, immigrants are five times more likely to win their case and be able to stay in the U.S. with an attorney. Rosie Reed says she gets calls from people asking for help all around the state, in places like Casper and Laramie. I'm just hoping people feel less desperate about getting that information and finding someone that can sort of walk alongside them in the immigration journey. Reed says launching the Wyoming Immigrant Advocacy Project has been overwhelming, but the community and donors are supportive so far, as it's been a long time coming. But when I'm able to sort of pause and lift my head up from all of that, I kind of can't, I can't believe this is finally happening. Kita ngapain di Indonesia? 
night. Back in Christy Liao Gable's house in Victor, Idaho, she says in the late 2000s, Reed helped relieve a lot of her anxiety when she got that deportation letter. Liao Gable got a green card shortly after, and in 2015, she officially became a citizen of the U.S. I feel like I survived that whole immigration ordeal, and I survived to be here and. You know, it's a huge accomplishment personally and now us as a family. Her husband sits next to her on the couch. Their son Asher squats in the corner of the living room, wearing a traditional batik shirt from Indonesia, playing with green toy garbage trucks. Liao Gable says she's trying to raise her son bilingual to have ties to her native culture. And says she hopes Reed can help more immigrants have a success story like her. There's a big need for it in this community and in the country. And I'm very thankful that I'm done with that part of life. <laughs> like I'm done with that chapter of like trying to get documentation and paperwork and all that stuff. Now I can live the life and raise our kid. The Wyoming Immigrant Advocacy Project is slated to begin accepting new clients next spring. And while it's mainly focused on Teton County, Rosie Reed says the goal is to help immigrants across the state down the line. Hannah Mersbach, KHL News. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked. Before we go today, we want to share another One Small Step conversation as part of a collaboration between Jackson Hole Community Radio and StoryCorps. Here's KHL's Executive Director, Emily Cohen. KHL continues with our StoryCorps initiative to connect Jackson Hole locals together for one-on-one conversations. One Small Step brings people with different beliefs and backgrounds to talk and to discover common ground. This week, we bring you a conversation between two local fathers, Mark Hauser and Andy Weening. Although politically and religiously different and a generation apart, they connected immediately over working as river guides on the snake. Here's a portion of their conversation about raising teenagers. A couple questions came to mind. The first one was um, just intrigued to hear a little more about your family, who they are. Yeah, got two boys and three girls. And uh, we've probably overdone it with the outdoor adventures (laughs) as a family. And the kids that are teenagers now, I ask them to do more outdoor adventures and they tend to resist. I feel lucky and fortunate when they do say yes. So we get to do stuff together here in Jackson Hole, like go for a bike ride or float down the river. As a parent, I've made an effort to really try and do a lot together, but maybe I overdid it a bit. <laughs> or they're just typical teenagers resisting. Well, I think I am. <laughs> uh, as a teacher or coach, I've spent many years with teenagers, so. Probably they're, they're quite typical. Okay, that's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> what role has faith played in forming your moral compass or your belief system and your politics? So it's had a, a strong influence more historically than, than in the present day. I started college in 1971, um, grew up in a a Lutheran household. Wisconsin. Wisconsin, yes. (laughs) Uh, When I first went to college, I became involved with Lutheran campus ministry. 
met Carl Jeck. You wouldn't know him. He was the Lutheran minister. He's also, and is, he's 80 now, but is gay. He was able to help me connect the dots that doing social justice work can take place not in a vacuum, but within the context of one's faith, that one's faith can lead to advocating more for justice in the world. And for me, that led me into doing this really 50 years of advocacy work around LGBTQ issues. Ah, 50 years. It's a multi-generational journey, I think. The only multi-generational thing I got going on is my faith. <laughs> yeah, what what better place to, you know, put your energy and look to the future now that sure. I mean your your children are launching, you know. Right. I, I'm sure you have hoped that you've created a framework for them that gives them a a center and a moral compass that they can follow. Yeah, I had hoped that, but lately I think that yeah, I struggle with that because I think, like, my teenage daughter who's 18, she has, I don't know how sincerely, but she's expressed how she's bisexual, and I've tried to not react in a strong way. Um, I've had to probably resist a little bit of my natural reaction to that. Of course. <laughs> and I think that my 15-year-old daughter definitely has some appearances of being uh, homosexual she seems to find within me some some strong bias hmm. you know that's not in favor of homosexuality so, um, and that's probably based on my religious perspective for sure with your daughters are you still able to engage in conversation around that topic yeah yeah we can still talk a little bit it's it's hard for a parent i mean it's so teenagers to talk to them about anything right yeah i worry about talking too much or saying the wrong thing and pushing them away or getting Mm. them to shut down for sure um Mm. tell me more about your um lutheran faith in god and what you were mentioning and uh, how that drove you to want to advocate for um, LGBTQ uh, minority? Going into college, I was considering the ministry okay. as my vocation. Um, I I shifted off that path over time, but I felt what I learned growing up in the Lutheran faith is, you know, compassion, caring for those among us who are less fortunate. Yeah. And it just ended up centering on LGBTQ issues. Uh, you know, I was d- deeply involved in that work um, when my daughter came out in uh, 1996 here in, in eighth grade. Um, she raised her here? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, she came out of the closet. She did. I gotcha. Thirteen years old. Okay. Nineteen ninety six. 
I bet she felt alone. It was interesting. She had a very supportive school system. It showed, you know, the value of just having adults in one's life that will, you know, accept you for the journey you're on. Sure. Sure. And you were already at that point. uh, Do you think that you led her to that in any way? Or it was all her? No, I don't. I taught middle school for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, I think middle school students, 11, 12, 13, they're not so focused on math, on <laughs> history. They're they're folk. They're focused on their hormonal development. And I, for me, my belief is that you know people know who they're attracted to, who they're not attracted to. So yeah, I yeah I don't you know I don't believe I led her to that that place. I, I think that's organic with who Britta is. I, I think she may have gained value in growing up in our household where it was, in a way, a non-issue. Right. It It is an issue for my own children, for me, and so it is something I struggle with. As a parent, I feel responsibility to uh, guide and direct my kids towards what I think is the best, what I think is correct or right or true, and... I try to be more open every day, but like you, historically, or the heritage that I have of my faith is, you know, considering homosexual acts as a sin. And so I would try and steer my kids away from that sin. So it's hard for me to, um, I haven't gotten to that place where I'm okay with them saying they're bisexual or whatever. Right. And, you know, (laughs) we're all in the place we are. Sure. I find that you're listening very intently, and I appreciate that. So um, thanks for your patience. Maybe it's the start of a future conversation. Yeah, for sure. I would would welcome that. Yeah, I would too. Thanks. You just heard Jackson Hole Locals Annie Weening and Mark Hauser in a One Small Step conversation a nationwide initiative from StoryCorps and KHOL that aims to mend political divisions one conversation at a time. These conversations are happening now through the end of the year. It's being produced here in Jackson by Allison Sperry. StoryCorps' One Small Step and the radio station hubs are made possible by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We are hosting a free public listening event on the 1st of November at the Center for the Arts. For more information and to sign up, visit 891khol.org. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Tyler Pratt, and this is KHOL Jackson.